The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, we are going through the book of Exodus. If you are a visitor joining us here today and this morning, we, we come to the actual event of the Exodus that the book is named after. Exodus means exiting or going out or departure. But we've been going through this book now, and for 11 chapters, there has been no Exodus. There's been no exiting or departure from Egypt. There's been no exit permit from the Pharaoh. But now we come to this actual event, and it's one of the high points of all the Bible. In Exodus chapter 12, and the 10th plague has come, or is about to come, that we're going to read here, where God's going to bring death on those who are not covered by the blood of the Lamb. This is the Passover, and it was in the dead of night. It was literally at darkest night. We're going to pick up reading in Exodus 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. For the people, so the people, this is Israel, took the Dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given them favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot Besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, All the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is the word of our Lord. And this is... Again, as I said, one of the high points in all the Bible what we just read here and what's happening here, the redemption, the deliverance of God's people. I read an ancient Egyptian poem, and there's some debate as to the exact date 
after the Exodus, but here's some parts of it. This is the Ipur papyrus. Plague is throughout the land. This is an ancient Egyptian writing this. Blood is everywhere. Death and the mummy cloth. Many dead are buried in the river. He who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. And it describes children of princes struck dead and children of the neck are laid out on the high ground. Gone is the gain of abundance of of children. It is the destruction of the land. They say all is ruin, verbatim what they said in Exodus 10. It is groaning throughout the land, mingled with lamentations, great mourning, crying. The doorkeepers say, let us go and plunder, and the slave takes what he finds. He who had no property is now a possessor of wealth. The poor of the land have become rich. Gold and silver are fastened on the neck of female slaves. And that's parts of it, but so much of that ties in with what we just read. This is real history, regardless of the dates and debates about that particular poem. But there's also more in history that may relate to this. Tutmos IV became Pharaoh after the traditional date of the Exodus, and he explained through this dream, Stella, how he became king, and he was giving a defense as to why he was the king. He explained that there was a dream where the god Horus told him that he could have the throne if he would uh, remove the sand from the sphinx. And normally the firstborn son of the pharaoh would become the next pharaoh. And there wouldn't be any need to claim a divine vision as to why you are the rightful heir. But if Pharaoh's firstborn son died in the 1400s B.C., and someone other than the firstborn was claiming the throne, that fits the history here with the fourth. And we could look at other things, but this isn't just history. This is real history, but this isn't just history. This is for us. Today, this is for us as well as we're going to see, but we need to start with the context and the history and see God's final plague on Egypt and then God's family plan for the earth. The context of chapter 11 starts with God saying, one more plague I will bring. This is the final plague. And Pharaoh had fair warning because God told him earlier, if you do not let Israel go, my son, I will kill your firstborn son. God is executing justice on this nation. Remember, the nation in chapter 1 had been killing all the sons that were being born to Israel. God is executing justice, and it comes in Exodus 12, 29, in the middle of the night, God kills all the firstborn And it's from the king to the captive and even to the cattle. And and remember, they they worshipped livestock and cattle. And he's he's taking out their livelihood as well as what they worshipped. From the palace to the prison. Every Egyptian home. There wasn't a single home in Egypt that didn't have someone that had died. In chapter 11, verse 5, it said, This would be even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, even the Egyptian slaves. In other words, the highest to the lowest levels of society would be hit by this. This is no Marxist revolution overthrowing the power structures of the oppressed 
This isn't wealthy Egyptians being struck down and then the poor Egyptians rising up. No, the poor too and the oppressed Egyptian captives in the dungeon also have their firstborn struck down. Every aspect of society is struck down. God is not liberating all like liberation theology would want him to. He is judging all sinners, great and small, rich and poor, slave or free. It's only those covered by the blood that his wrath will pass over. And I want you to turn to another passage, if you would, Revelation chapter 16. Because it's important to see it's not just Old Testament times that God strikes down people like this. We could read in the book of Acts in the New Testament time of the church, a man who was proud and in Acts 12, 23 says, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God glory and he breathed his last. He was proud, accepting praise that only God should. God struck him down and he breathed his last. There's a warning to any who do not give God glory. But think about this. Exodus 12 was the final plague on Egypt, but this is not the final. There are plagues to come for all who do not glorify God and repent of their sin. This isn't just for back then. That local judgment in the past, Scripture ends with this language of that local judgment going global in the future. It's not just going to be on one nation. It's going to be on all nations. So think about that. What happened on the nation of Egypt, the water had turned to blood, there were these painful sores, there was darkness that covered the whole kingdom, there were these hailstones and and all of that. Look at Revelation 16, verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So just like in Exodus, it it didn't fall on God's people, just God's enemies. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing that is in the sea died. Remember in Egypt, every living thing in the Nile died. Now everything in the sea and the ocean. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. What God did on Egypt here, the language is that he's going to do on earth before Jesus returns. And he's going to make a distinction again between his people who he will keep safe as he judges the evil kingdom. Look at the middle of verse 9. They cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. Notice it calls them plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Again, darkness, just like Old Testament Egypt's kingdom. And then you can look at lightning and and a, a storm and thunder and all that. But just skip down to verse 21. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. There's a bigger and worse judgment coming again. And even those who die before the end, this book ends with plagues added to those who would dishonor God's word. Every unrepentant sinner will face judgment, and a judgment worse 
than Egypt faced in our text, either in the end times or at the end of life. If you're not trusting in the blood of the Lamb, judgment is coming for those who do not give God glory, for those who do not repent. So this is not just back then. This is relevant for every human being. And this is a warning for those who are not in Christ. So go back to Exodus 12, but just know this isn't just history. As we understand God's pattern of judgment and salvation, every single one of us needs to consider, are we ready, are you ready, if you were to die unexpectedly? We don't know when our hour of death would come. But these Egyptians who died were not prepared. We have in the gospel the way that we can be prepared for that. It's by turning from our sin. It's by trusting in Christ, the blood of the Lamb covering us to keep us safe from that judgment to come. But there's an irony here in Exodus 12 because the ancient Egyptians were morbidly obsessed with death. I mean, you probably learned this in school, how much they would intricately try to prepare for the afterlife, and they had all these rituals and and their coffins and their pyramids and, and all these things. They wanted to be prepared for death. They're not prepared for what happens here. They can't prepare for this. And another irony is Pharaoh had said earlier, if you see my face again, you will die. But it's actually his son who dies. Pharaoh's son dies. And then Exodus twelve thirty one. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people. The Hebrew word for summon actually means to, to summon by a third party. It's, it's kind of like a, a guy who's too weak to talk to a girl face-to-face, so he sends a friend to try to relay the message and see what she thinks. You know, maybe you can fill this out. Yes, no, maybe. But he's embarrassed. Pharaoh here is, is impotent. He's weak. This supposed mightiest man of the mightiest empire on earth is utterly weak, and he's in utter defeat. And Pharaoh goes on in verse 31, Both you and the people of Israel go. Did you notice what he said? The people of Israel. He's finally admitting they're not his people. They're Israel. He says for the first time, there's a distinct nation that is not his own, who he doesn't own. This is big, and he's, he's calling Egypt my people, but he wants the people of Israel to go out from his people. There's a distinction, and also there's a change in the way he's speaking. Earlier he said, I will let you go. Remember there were times where he said, I will let you go, but then he changed his mind when the consequences, the plague went away, but he said, I will let you go, only don't go very far. And he wanted to qualify. The women can't go, the children can't go, don't take your livestock, but all, I will let you go. There's no pronoun I here now. And there's no letting, and there's no limitation, there's no qualification, there's no hesitation, there's no negotiation. This is the end of I. Or Pharaoh was just up, go. And the end of verse 31 repeats it go, serve the Lord as you have said. And this is again ironic because the guy who said, I don't know Yahweh, 
and I will not let you go. Now he says, go, serve Yahweh, worship Yahweh, serve him, not me. This is the, the word he'd been using for the service of them to him, but now he says, go serve him, not me. And it's no longer as I have said. Notice, it's as you have said. You're the boss, Moses. You're calling the shots now. Verse 32, take your flocks and your herds as you have said. He says it again, and be gone. That's the third time a word for go is being used. And it's almost just comical. Go, go, go. I don't know if any of you have read the book by Dr. Seuss, Marvin K. Mooney. Anyone have read that book? Maybe a, a few of you. Here's part of it. The time has come. The time is now. You can go by foot. You can go by cow. If you like, you can go in an old blue shoe. Just go, go, go. Please do, do, do. Marvin K. Mooney, I don't care how. Marvin K. Mooney, will you please go now? I said go, and go I meant. And the book ends, the time had come. So Marvin went. I can still picture that book. The time had come now. And Moses went with Israel. But before he goes, Pharaoh begs at the end of verse 32. And bless me also. Another irony because the Bible says that without dispute, there's no question, the, it's the greater one who blesses the lesser. So to ask, bless me, is admitting you're greater and, and I, I need you. He says basically, it's as you say, but could you say a blessing for me? It's too little. It's too late. It's lame, really. It's pathetic. But sinners don't need the blessing of man. What sinners need is the blood of the Lamb. They don't need the blessing of man. They need the blood of the Lamb. And don't try superstition. You need to cry for salvation. Cry to the Lord to save you. You don't need a Catholic priest to bless you. You don't need a, a Christian to put a good word in for you with the guy upstairs. I mean, the trivial ways that people speak of, of God and thinking that, that if we can just get a little of this, what, what we need is Christ. We need to beg of Him. And there's mercy for even Egyptians and other nations who would beg for mercy but I'm reminded of after 9-11, there were many who wanted God to bless America. But not necessarily on His terms or His way. There's a scene in The Fiddler on the Roof where a young Jew asked the local rabbi, is there a blessing? Can, can, we, can we say a blessing for the, the Russian czar who has persecuted us and Rabbi knows the scriptures that the Lord is merciful and gracious, so he doesn't quite know what to say, but then he says, God bless him, but keep him far away from us. And I think that's, that's really what's not only happening for the, the Jews wanting to be away from their oppressor, but it's mutual. Egypt wants Israel far away from them. 
Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. And we looked at verse 34 last time, how they, they literally have to run and they have to go. It's, they're, they're, they're dining and, and dashing. Someone said this is the original, the unleavened bread is the original fast food. They've got to take all this dough to go in their cloaks and these bowls it describes. But they also get a massive send-off gift in verse 35. Silver and gold, jewelry and clothes, everything they asked for and more. Verse 36, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Plundered is a military term. This is a term for being conquered. These are conquerors carrying off spoils of victory. And in verse 37 and 41, the words for men on foot or their hosts are, are army terms. This is the war and God has won. This is the war that God has won. Here's how Moses later describes it in the book of Numbers, looking back. On the day after Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. While the Egyptians were burying burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down. And again, this isn't just an Old Testament story. This language, this imagery is, is used in the, in the New Testament. Christ is our Passover. Passover is a picture of what he has done, the victory that we have in him. And, and in a greater way, Jesus was triumphant. He was triumphant over the last enemy who is death. He rose triumphantly from the grave. And it, scripture says he led captives in his train. Ephesians says, and he gave gifts to men in the process. And Ephesians 1 says, we have in Jesus an even greater redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And we have the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. He freely gave us more than we could even ask. It says the immeasurable riches of his grace he's going to show us for the ages to come. And Romans 8 says, we were slaves to sin, but now we've been redeemed from that, and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so, Romans 8. And even that language of the Old Testament house of Egypt, it was strong, but Jesus in his ministry talked about entering a strong man's house to plunder his goods, to defeat Satan, to cast out the the darkness And and Paul describes it this way, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, of his enemies, even the the fallen angels, triumphing over them in the cross. And then he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Isn't that good news? That that he has won. He, He won the war at the cross and he will win in the future. And so this is a picture of how God does things. This is a picture of what God will do in the future. It's a a picture in this chapter of future grace in so many ways, from slavery to victory, from bondage to blessings. This is the gospel pattern of salvation through judgment. And it was things like riches they hadn't worked for. It was a freedom that was a gift that they couldn't earn and couldn't work for. 
So the commentators point out, previously weak Israel came away from slavery to the greatest power of the day, instantly enriched. People suddenly held in their pockets and bags more precious gems and metals than they would have ever had a chance to get in their lifetime. And all the clothes that they would need for many years of living in the wilderness. Remember, they're, they're about to go on a long journey and the Lord is providing for their journey with clothing And later they would take those precious metals, the gold, and even some of the stones and and jewelry, and they would would use that to to make the tabernacle. They would use the, the gold that was given there to build God's house, but remember they would also misuse that same gold. It's going to be later in Exodus 32. They don't see Moses for a while, and they give the gold to Aaron. He throws it in the fire, and it becomes what? A golden calf. And so even the, the blessings of that gold that could be used for God's house was also used to worship falsely. And so there's a warning here and a danger that we can face also. To, to, even the blessings that can be given to us can be abused by us and can become idolatrous. We can idolize even good things. We can be so fascinated with the trends of this world, the popular culture. We can be consumed by work, our artwork, our hobbies, our pleasures. How easily we can turn God's good gifts into false gods, into idols. In fact, Exodus 12, verse 12 says, at the end of this, what God was doing also was executing judgment on the false gods. So that's what God means to do in all this. Whatever you supremely prize, you idolize. And we need to examine our heart and see where we need to repent, where we need to realign what is number one in our life. What are we living for? There's a warning here, but there's also an encouragement. You can trust God. He is faithful to keep His promises. Even when you don't see him at work, it had been a lot of years before this came. God is faithful. And so in verse 37, there's this note that the people of Israel were 600,000 men plus their families. God had kept his promise to Abraham. He told Abraham, go and look outside. Look up at the heavens. See if you can count the stars. He says, that is how your descendants are going to be. And then he said, you can know for certain your descendants are going to be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. All of that is is being fulfilled here. And if you wonder about the 430 years versus the 400 years, their, their first I think 30 years were on good terms with Egypt. They weren't mistreated and slaves for those first 30 years, but then for 400 years as another pharaoh arose, they had been mistreated and enslaved. Here's another promise to Israel in Genesis 46, 3. I am, that was Genesis 15 I just read. Here's Genesis 46. I am God, the God of your father. He's saying to Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there." There, in Egypt, I will make you a great nation. 
I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. When Jacob and his family went down into Egypt, there was about 70 of them. Now, there's 600,000 plus men, not even counting their families. God is with his people. Whatever you're going through, if you're his people, he is with you in a special way. Don't be afraid. He's everywhere, but he's in a special way with those who trust in him. Whatever you're going through, when you are down, God is, goes down with his people. He himself brings them up. We sang about that from the Psalms. That's in so many of the Psalms. He keeps all his promises. We can trust him. I was just marveling hearing DDA again tell the story yesterday of how the Lord in his trip was just so marvelously was at work in so many different things that I can't even take the time to tell you that, that from a human standpoint shouldn't have happened as he wasn't getting his exit permission and as the time was running out and, and some remarkable things that, that had, had never been seen before, even of some of the officials there, but as he's really God-giving favor, I think of this very story here, it was, it was like there were hard-hearted people, but God gave favor and, and sent him on his way in, in remarkable, amazing ways, even like opening up the, the sea for them. He, he told about one time where he was going across the, the border in a country that they were at war with, and they stopped them there, and he's here with the children, and, and they look at his documents and the children, they say, no, no, we won't, I, I can't let you over. And then while the guy's talking, he gets a phone call. He steps away, takes the phone call, and he says, are you, are you DDA? Are you Pastor DDA? I just got a call that says, I need to, I need to let you through. And so he, he lets them through, and there's a, a whole series of, of things like that. As DDA shared last week, we need to trust him. We need to love him. We need to obey him. And, and by the way, if you want to hear more of that story, it's it's available through the email that went out to the church or through our, our church Facebook page as well. But God is faithful to the end. To old age, Moses is 80 years old here, but God had big things for him still. And Abraham and Sarah, when they were about 100, they were childless. But God did what was medically impossible, and he gave them millions of descendants in just 400-some years. Think of Jacob, the one who came into Egypt. He was a great sinner. But God made a great nation of him in Egypt. And I think of Jeremiah 33, 3, one of my dad's favorite verses when we first went to the Philippines. Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you know not. That was a verse that ministered to our family and my father. And God shows us great and mighty things. I, I want to show you something great in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them. The them from verse 37 is the people of Israel. Also going with them was a mixed group, a group of others. Uh, Non-Israelites are going up with the Israelites. There's people of mixed 
ethnicity, who were joining the family of Israel in the Exodus. God didn't just deliver Jews in Exodus 12. There's a multitude of Gentiles also going out with them. And so this takes us to God's family plan for the nations or or for the earth. This is part of God's promise to Abraham also. At the end of Genesis 12, 3, he says, In you, and this is in your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through your family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Gentile families of the earth here are being blessed with the family of Israel in the Exodus. Paul calls that promise to Abraham the gospel preached beforehand, Galatians 3. That all nations would be blessed with Israel by sharing the faith of Abraham. All nations in the New Testament is the word ethne, all ethne. We're to make disciples of all ethne, all nations, all ethnicities, we could say. I like to call it God's multi-ethnic family plan. And think about this, the Passover, there's nothing more Jewish you would think than the Passover It's that institution that's been celebrated since this chapter for 3,500 years by Jewish families. But literally, from day one, God had non-Jews to be with them and to join their family. So let's finish reading the chapter, verse 47. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. This is the Passover. If a stranger, that's a foreigner, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. In other words, the same law. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. And their hosts include Gentiles. And those who were circumcised were those who would be converting to the faith versus those who were unwilling to to come into the covenant. And so the Passover, even in the beginning, had law had a law for that would be the same for the native and the other nation that would join their faith, the Israelites and the non-Israelites. And remember, in chapter 9, God said his purpose in this whole exodus is that my name will be proclaimed to all the earth. That's why he's bringing them out of Egypt, so his name is going to be proclaimed to the earth. It's not just about them. And in chapter 7, God said the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, when I do this. And then in chapter 9, even some of the Egyptian leaders and officials begin to fear the word of the Lord, and they start listening to what Moses is saying and and not to Pharaoh. They're fearing the Lord. And some of them come even further than fear to faith. Not all the Egyptians stayed under God's judgment. Some of them left with Israel in verse 38, and continued with them. What we read in in the Torah about different families that had Jewish and Egyptian parents. There's a mixture of others, likely other African and Middle Eastern nations are in a mixed multitude. It's a multitude. It's not just a few. It's not like there were just a few stragglers. There's a multitude of them. I never really thought about that growing up, but there's a, a lot of People, there's a multitude who were not Jews who were going out with them. 
What were some of those mixed multitudes? What might they have looked like? We have drawings from within a hundred years of this era on various tombs. And in the top there, you can see the traditional ethnic Egyptians. A little bit lower are the the Cushites or the the Nubians in the bottom circle there. Uh, Here's a more close-up drawing of the, the Cushites. Those are from farther down in Africa, below Egypt in Old Testament times. Um, well, there's, there's many of these drawings of these Cushites and these Nubians. Uh, this is one during the reign of King Tut. This is one of the paintings from the tombs. But there was a whole, there were all these multi-ethnic mixed multitudes in Egypt that go with them. And remember, God had promised to Jacob that he would make him a multitude of nations. That's Genesis 48. For, and, and that actually started in Egypt. So go back to Genesis 48 just for a moment. And just think about this with me. Joseph earlier had married Asenath from On, which is in the land of Africa. And so he had two sons of mixed ethnicity that would be half African. And, and here's these sons now come to Jacob, the father of Israel. Look at Genesis 48, verse 5. Jacob says to Joseph, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. He says, Your boys are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh, that's their names. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. In other words, there is much in my family as my first two sons. As much as my firstborn Reuben and, and my second in line, that's how much these are mine. This is, this is part of my family of Israel. And in verses 9 and 10, he, Israel blesses and embraces them and receives them and welcomes them and kisses them as family and, and it describes them as on his knees, which was even uh, how they would do adoption in those days. And to Jacob, and or also named Israel, these these African-born sons are mine just as much as my Jewish sons. And then in verse 16, he, he speaks of his being redeemed. And then he says of these two sons, Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. Let the name of Israel be carried on with these. And the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. In other words, there is much a part of Israel as, as the, the patriarchs. And let them grow into a multitude. That's his blessing. May there be a a multitude like this that would grow even in this land. And then verse 19 at the end, he says, His offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Speaking of Ephraim, there's going to be a multitude of nations. Sounds kind of like Exodus 12, this mixed multitude. Verse 20, so he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. This became a a blessing that they would say to others, may God bless you the way he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. These two boys of mixed ethnicity are being blessed with the descendants of Abraham. This is fulfilling that promise from Genesis 12.3. Ephraim and Manasseh actually become tribes of Israel. They're not just kind of in the family. They actually become tribes of Israel. Israel's tribes had African blood from the start. And Exodus 6 traces the family tree of Moses and Aaron. We looked at this a while back, and it lists Phineas, which means 
black man or Negro or Nubian, depending on the, the sources there. There's at least nine scholars who've studied that ancient era and, and that name, the meaning in Egypt, either was a person with unusually dark skin or a true African. Could very well be his mom married into the family and the priestly line. And he becomes, Phineas becomes one of the first and famous priests of Israel. He saves Israel from civil war. He, he spares by his prayers Israel from judgment. He, he, is, he is spoken of by God as being zealous for his glory and a model for all of the, the people of Israel. And it says this, even of him, only other person besides Abraham, it says this, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. This is a true believer as much as Abraham. And one scholar studying that extensively writes, it's extremely probable that Phineas was at least half black. And when combined with the mixed multitude of Exodus 12, Phineas reveals to us that there was a significant presence of Cushites among the early Israelites. At its beginning, the highest level of Israelite priesthood apparently had black ethnic elements within it. Close quote. And again, these Cushites that were very much involved in Egypt and ancient artwork and records were Africans from south of Egypt, from the area of Sudan today and and even lower. So go to Numbers 12, if you would, just one other passage to look at. And, And remember, Moses, who's writing all this, he was adopted by the daughter of an Egyptian king. He wasn't raised in a Jewish home. He knew something of mixed ethnicity in the African multitudes and family he would have grown up with. But did you know that Moses himself married an African? Numbers 12.1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Cush is from Sudan today. Remember some of these pictures of the, of the Cushites. This is who he, he marries someone, and, and Miriam and Aaron are speaking against the fact that he, he married a Cushite woman, and then again it emphasizes he had married a, a Cushite woman. And verse 9 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against them, those who were coming against Moses. He, he said earlier, He is faithful. But God departed, and verse 10, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. God brings judgment on her and makes her, at least temporarily, white as snow in judgment as she criticizes Moses, her brother, for his marriage to this African. God has always had this family plan for Israel for marriage, it can include adoption, certainly for the churches today, to include the mixed multitude of God's people. And from the highest level of Israel's tribes and priests and even their leader that brought them out of Egypt, God has a multi-ethnic family plan from the start. So you can go back to Exodus 12. Just know God's plan of redemption is big, and it's bigger maybe than we realize in the early parts of the Bible. This isn't like a new thing when we get to the New Testament. Now, all nations know this is starting in the first two books of the Bible. And listen to what the prophets said in the Old Testament. Amos 9, 7. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? 
He seems to be telling Israel there he cares for the Cushites just like he did for them in the Exodus. And, and then he goes on in Amos 9, to all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Amos 9 is what's quoted in Acts 15 when the church is talking about Gentiles coming in from all nations. But Isaiah also prophesies there's going to be another exodus in the future where Messiah is going to gather his people from Egypt and from Cush and from the Middle Eastern lands and beyond the rivers of Cush, and they're going to become true worshipers. That's in Isaiah 11 and 18. Listen to Zephaniah 3 verse 9, that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh and serve him shoulder to shoulder. That's God's plan. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers. And he's calling other people from different ends of the earth, but that would be one of the farthest ends they knew of. He's calling them and saying that they will come, they will serve, they will worship shoulder to shoulder. And even those beyond the rivers of Cush, even farther down in Africa, my worshipers, the, the land farther down below Sudan in Ethiopia and all that would include the land of Congo. And I was just thinking about that yesterday as I got to see a, a picture of the, just a snapshot of the family plan of God. There were 10 different people from Congo with, with DDA and it was a, a get together of some families who have adopted and care for African children as their own children. Those two kids we've been praying for, it was such a blessing to see them. DDA was singing with his guitar, and that little girl runs over, and she starts singing with him and grabs the microphone. It was such an incredible moment here. But God has always had a plan to bring into his family of faith all kinds of people. And my great-grandfather, as a lot of you know, moved his family to Congo around the year 1900, and he had the privilege in his journals that he wrote about coming shoulder to shoulder, just like the prophecy talked about, serving, worshiping the Lord together with people from beyond the rivers of Cush. But that family plan started way back in Bible times. It starts in the beginning of the Bible, and when it goes into the New Testament, the church is born in the book of Acts, and it, it actually mentions different African and Middle Eastern and Asia Minor nations all on the day of Pentecost among where people have, have traveled and some of them had converted from other nations to Judaism and then Christianity. And in Acts chapter 8, you remember it's Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, and to the ends of the earth. Well, someone from the ends of the earth from Ethiopia comes to Jerusalem. Philip sees him. Philip goes and shares the gospel with him. He gets saved. He's baptized. He believes in Jesus, and he goes back to Ethiopia. And church history says that he was the used of God to start the first church in Ethiopia. The church is there still to this day. The, the true believers, that is, in Acts 13, there's black and African leaders where the church is first called Christian in Antioch. There's someone saved, a Gentile from the, who had served Herod, there's, there's Gentiles from all over the place. And I, I didn't get this when I was young. All my, all my kids' Bibles had all white characters, but there's, there's a lot more color in the real Bible. And we read last week about how John looks and he sees, and he sees in heaven this multitude, and it's a multitude that no one can count of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. You could say every color, every country, every culture. Worshiping Jesus, whose blood is just like ours. 
And he looked a little different than us outwardly, but his blood was just like ours, so he can redeem all who look to him and trust in him. That is the vision that's the end of racism. Our, our, our world has such different ways to address that. That's God's vision. That's God's vision for missions. That, that's why we, we go to other nations, and, and it's also for churches to pursue. It's to God's glory when there's a diversity of ethnicities that come together in unity as the family of Christ. Amen? And so think about that. It is, we need to long for that. We need to love, to welcome and love internationally and love and live out these truths, and especially people who don't look like us, but to welcome all people, to not judge by outward appearance. Our closing song, Across the Lands, I think brings it all together. If we know God's judgment, if we know God's family plan for the earth, that should move us. It should move some of us to go across the lands, but maybe you need to be moved to go across your workplace or to go across your neighborhood or, or to just go across whatever it is, the streets, or go across from wherever you're comfortable That hymn says, leading captives in your way and interceding for your own from each tribe and tongue and nation, you are leading sinners home. May we step outside of our comfort zone, whatever that looks like, those who might not look as much like us, and let's look to the Lord who brought out captives of Egypt, that he's with us. And let's remember as we walk out those doors, As you walk out the doors of this church, you are entering the mission field here. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that his plan and his purposes are being fulfilled among us. And and we live in a time where there's There's things that can discourage us in the world, but Lord, there's many encouraging things happening around the world, and you are drawing people from all around the world. In in the very types of peoples who are mentioned here in in the Middle East and even from the Muslim world where uh, there continues to be a great need, but also in our own land, Lord, we are in great need of, of your grace and these truths. So help us, Lord, to live in light of them for your glory. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, the Savior for the nations. Amen.